The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What were the protocols that they followed before launching this strike? Uh, I think that there are different protocols depending on how you code the strike. And if something is an offensive strike to hit the enemy, there's there's many more safeguards in place than if you say it's a defensive strike to protect allied ground troops. And if they used a defensive strike, would a reasonable person think that it was necessary based on the situation? Because remember, these fighters had been corralled in this spot for a month. They weren't going anywhere. Uh, they certainly didn't have the capability to overrun the forces that were there. And so I think that it would be revealing to see that information and understand more about how and why the strike cell acted so that we can decide whether you know their decision was reasonable. I'm Natalie Orpet, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 10th, 2021. On March 18th, 2019, the U.S. conducted an airstrike in Baghouz, Syria, as part of its battle against the Islamic State. Two bombs were dropped, killing dozens of people, as many as 80, according to U.S. Central Command, the majority of whom seemed to have been civilians. But the American public had never heard of this strike until last month, when a New York Times investigation revealed not only the fact of the strike, but the troubling government response that led to its being concealed from public view for more than two years. I sat down with Dave Phillips, co-author of the Times article and a veteran national security reporter, and Luke Hardig, a fellow in New America's international security program and executive editor at Just Security. We talked about what we know and don't know about the incident itself, the legal and policy framework around airstrikes, allegations of war crimes, and what's been happening within the U.S. government in the years since the strike. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 10th, uncovering a secret U.S. airstrike in Syria. Dave, in mid-November, you and Eric Schmidt published an article that was really striking, talking about an airstrike that had happened in Baghouz, Syria. So can you just give us an overview of what your article said and what the context was of that strike? Sure. So just to put people in place, this is at the very end of a four-year air war against the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. And at one point, the militants had controlled an area of ground about the size of Tennessee, and they were using it to build their own military, and they were launching terrorist attacks against NATO allies. It was a huge deal. But by 2019, ISIS had basically been chased into a tiny corner of a bend in the Euphrates River where they were going to make their last stand. It was their Alamo. It was about a square mile of land where they had built little hand-dug bunkers and had a a scattering of tents and uh, vehicles, and they were surrounded on all sides by the coalition forces. That standoff had been going on for more than a month, and the coalition seemed to be ready to just wait them out and slowly let people give up. But on uh, the morning of March 19th, 2019, something very different happened. There was a number of uh, strikes in quick succession, airstrikes. And one of those strikes hit an area down by the river where there was a, a earthen bank that sort of blocked this little area from, from coalition fire. And so there was a large number of people huddled there estimate of about 70, uh, women, children, injured folks, not fighters for sure. And an F-15 came over, an American F-15, and at the direction of special operations forces on the ground, dropped a bomb right on it. 
Now, immediately, the what had happened was obvious to people within the military. All of this was captured in high definition by drones overhead, and the video showed that you know there's this rather large gathering of civilians, and and the bomb just hit dead center. And then the few people that did uh, survive and were struggling to get away were bombed again. And people who saw this this video in the operations center of of Operation Inherent Resolve, they reported it and said, this is a big deal. This needs to be investigated. This is possibly a a violation of the laws of war, i.e. a war crime. And we need to check it out to figure out what happened, why it happened, and who's responsible. But what we were able to learn is that that never happened. There wasn't any uh, real vigorous independent investigation. The Special Operations Force that called in the strike was essentially able to investigate itself and and maybe not surprisingly found that nothing bad had happened. There were no public reports of civilian casualties made, even though uh, the military said that during this operation they were going to report publicly every death, uh, accidental death that happened. And the people pushing from inside the military to say, hey, wait, you know, we're not following our own rules, our own process. They were ignored. That it was really striking to us because one of the things that was really remarkable about Operation Inherent Resolve is that it was just a really aggressive air war. Something like eight times as many uh, bombs and missiles were deployed against ISIS per month than uh, in Afghanistan against the Taliban, just orders of magnitude higher. And the leadership said, hey, look, We've got all sorts of safeguards in place, deliberate process, things that we're doing to make sure we're hitting the right people, that we're using the right weapons that aren't too big, and that that to the extent possible, uh, civilians are not getting hurt in the process. And if we do in, inadvertently hurt someone, we'll let you know. But what we found is that that wasn't the case here. And it raised questions about whether that was the case at all in the larger war. Great. Thank you. Luke, so Dave has talked through a couple of the players that he found were involved. Um, I want to talk first about the the strike itself and the context. So he mentioned there's a special operations unit that was responsible for the strike. There was surprise among the um, Air Force personnel who were based at Combined Air Operations Center um, who were seeing what was going on in real time. What can you glean from the fact of those players' involvement about sort of the nature of this operation. Yeah, well, it's not, you know, it's not uncommon to have multiple uh, military entities or task forces conducting operations in, a, in the same battle space because they might have different objectives in terms of what they're there to do. But the reporting on on this being a special operations task force suggests that they their function was probably one of two things. And here it's really clear it's probably the first of those things. So it seems in this case that their focus was probably on supporting their partners um, and supporting them in, in an advise assist type capacity. And, and that included bringing in airstrikes uh, for what they assessed to be the collective self-defense of those forces. Oftentimes, special operations task forces will also be involved in, you know, more deliberate direct action type targeting of high-value terrorists and, and others of of that kind of higher um, status. But here, it seems like that this is in direct support of the SDF, who is our our strongest uh, partner in the in the Syria region when it came to the counter ISIS conflict. Another thing that Dave mentioned um, was that the U.S. had committed to reporting on civilian casualties. Is that something that happens commonly in this sort of context? Yeah, I mean, and to their credit, you know, CENTCOM has uh, has kind of led the way among the DoD combatant commands, and maybe it's just because they've been running the main wars. But in in disclosing more information about strikes, um, about civilian casualties from those strikes, but you know, that's as a general policy matter. I think in this particular case, and you know, Dave and Eric's reporting really really points to some pretty massive shortfalls and credibility questions um, in terms of how that that reporting actually takes place. You know, in this particular case, first of all. 
well, there, it seems like, and it's hard to tell because there's not a lot of information that's been given, but it looks like CENTCOM um, at some point acknowledged that there was an open question about whether there were civilian casualties caused on March 18th, 2019. It doesn't specify whether it was this strike or any of the other strikes that might have taken place in that that pretty pitched battle um, that, that happened that morning. But, but the reports that they're required to send to Congress that you refer to as the 1057 reports, the piece of legislation that they come from, um, those for, for 2019 and the updated version for 2020 do not make any mention um, of this particular strike. And indeed, it's, it's really, this is a sort of thing where it, it probably would not have come to light, or there's a good chance it would not have come to light if not for this reporting. Uh, and I think that's pretty troubling on its face because it, it suggests that it's not just a question of, yes, there's a report and there's disputes about what it actually produced. Produce, but but in this particular case, that there would have been very little light shed on the action at all, um, if not for for this press account, you know, two and a half years after it took place. Right, Dave, you've done a lot of reporting on national security, and I just wonder how much did this particular operation itself, not the not the reaction to it, which we'll talk about later, but this strike itself, was there anything? notable and usual to it? Or, or does it just seem like something went wrong in this particular one? You know, what struck me about it was the scale of the attack that was used. The, the American military has some really amazing tools uh, and develop new ones every day that are more precise and, and more sort of custom fitted to what they need. So uh, the sort of the tool of choice for hitting ISIS, I think, for around that time was a Hellfire missile, which is is uh, very accurate and uh, you know has a blast radius that that you know is only a couple feet. So you could you know blow up one car full of terrorists and and potentially not harm the car right next to it. What happened in this case is, according to special operations, they were tracking a handful of ISIS fighters on foot lightly armed, you know, maybe carrying AK-47s, saw them go through this area where the field was. And, and the drone that they were using to, to track these guys didn't have a very good camera, but um, they uh, wanted to hit them and, and just didn't realize there were civilians in the area. Now, whether that's true or not that they knew those civilians were there, I think is an open question. But what we do know is that they responded with, with some really big Ordinance, the type of stuff that you could take down buildings with. I believe it was a 500 pound bomb and then maybe two 2,000 pound bombs. And that seemed really to contradict what the leadership has been saying about how they, they conducted this air war. They said it was, was precise and also the, their word for using the right sized weapon is proportional. And it just didn't seem proportional to me. You know, if you had hit those fighters on foot with a, with a hellfire next to this group of people, you might not have killed any of them, but you certainly wouldn't have killed all of them. And what we, you know, the evidence suggests is that, that, you know, they were all killed because these massive weapons, pretty much some of the biggest stuff that, that our jet fighters can carry uh, was used. If I can just add to that, I mean, I think that's, a, I think Dave makes such a great point here. It is a pretty substantial um, ordinance used. I think they initially said, you know, is a two, two, one, 500 and two, 2000. And then they re revised that to say it was actually three, 500 pounders. You know, are, those are big bombs regardless, right? I mean, the, the, uh, the explosive power on a hellfire is substantially less than either, either one of those. And, and what was interesting about that is so they, it seems like the story is, well, we were out of munitions on the the uh, the drones overhead. This was the available munitions, and in fact, they actually DoD actually said in their statement that they put out on this that that the strike was proportional due to the unavailability of smaller ordnance. And this was really odd. First of all, I should caveat that I'm not uh, I'm not a lawyer, but certainly live in this space of uh, understanding discrimination and proportionality. And this doesn't really match any recognizable definition of proportionality. This idea that there just was not a smaller ordinance available. You know, I think further, I think some of the things that 
that DOD and CENTCOM have acknowledged are things they ought to do in the future. And these are things like, you know, making sure that there's a drone or a a surveillance platform that has high definition video, making sure there's coordination among elements, um, that these are the sorts of things that might reduce the risk of civilian harm. You know, the the principle of proportionality requires that that the department take all feasible precautions to reduce the risk of harm. And so if these were things that they could have done, it raises questions as to whether there were some serious flaws with proportionality to begin with. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I did want to dig in on those two main principles of international law. So in addition to the principle of proportionality that you just talked about, there's, of course, the principle of distinction, which is to distinguish between civilians and combatants. And that's a requirement under international law. No one really refutes that. But I think that this incident really lays bare a an interesting legal question, which is, so we know that um, according to your reporting, Dave, CENTCOM acknowledged 80 deaths, but claims that only four civilians were killed and says that 16 of the people were fighters, which leaves, of course, 76 people whose status was not defined in the CENTCOM disclosure about this. But what do we know about who those people were, and what do we know about who was deciding who those people were? Sure. So let's let's think about this in the in terms of distinction, because as you mentioned, in order to strike, the American military needs to have positive identification that who they are hitting is an enemy combatant. So, so what they say is there were four people that were civilians killed. There were 16 people that were fighters. And and depending on how you count it, there are about 60 people that they're not sure how to characterize them. Well, if you're not sure, uh, then you haven't positively identified them as as, uh, enemy and you uh, need to assume that they're civilian. But look, this was a really complex area. So from what I understand about what, what the drone sensors recorded, there was a large group of people here sheltering down in this low area, uh, and many of them were wrapped in blankets against the cold. Now, in those blankets, there may have been wounded fighters who had been put there for safekeeping. There may have been women and children. Uh, there may have been uh, people that were captives of the ISIS and were held there against their will. And there may have even been fighters wrapped in those blankets. We just don't know. But until you know the rules of engagement don't allow them them to strike. And so it was really troubling that afterwards they just said, well, we're not sure. And I think that gets to a second problem with, with the entire process of the air war. And that was the process of assessing what you hit. With any and all of the, the reports that Operation Inherent Resolve received about civilian casualties, they investigated it and publicly reported their findings. It didn't matter if it was a, a you know came from a tweet with inside Syria or from a recognized human rights group. If there were allegations of civilians killed, they checked it out, which is great, right? Um, not only great peace of mind for for us, but hopefully a, a learning tool for the military. The problem is is that they put in place a, a process that was so weak that it was really largely unable to figure this stuff out. And it, it basically came down to reviewing the drone feeds, uh, you know, the video feeds from strikes and seeing if you could see any civilians killed. But that's difficult if you're hitting a building and the building collapses uh, or a car and you're not sure who's in it. And in addition, if there was any doubt as to who is a civilian, oftentimes they didn't count them. And I think that shows in in how they counted this strike. And so unless they were were absolutely sure, they would say with some certainty, no civilians were killed. Or I, they said it in a different way, which is like these, these reports of, of civilian casualties were unfounded, which I think gave a level of assurance or a tone of assurance that didn't exist. And I think that, that a more accurate way of looking at it is that they had very little idea what was going on on the ground. Yeah. And just to clarify, it it seems from your reporting that some of the 
view of this was not actually in real time for those who were committing the actual strike, right? So the the Combined Air Operations Center had eyes through a drone, but that visual feed was not going to the people who actually committed the strike. So just to clarify, when these assessments are happening after the fact to determine you know, whether there were civilians who were killed and whether there was a problem with any given strike, are they looking for the assessment at what those who committed the strike, conducted the strike are seeing themselves or are they looking externally for evidence? I think afterwards when they did the assessment, they looked at the better resolution footage. And I I talked to someone who was involved in this process and he said, yeah, like, it was obvious, you know, from there that that this was a big group of people and and they shouldn't have been hit. But that wasn't clear from the from the poor quality video footage that the the strike cell was was relying on. What's interesting though is is that that assessment was done. It was reported up. It was signed off on, and and you know the front page said, hey, a very small number of civilians was killed, um, and sixteen fighters were killed. And so I think that the the top leaders. I, I, who signed off on it said, great, okay, we're doing well. And everything else was lost in the fine print deep inside. And so there was never any reckoning within the the military that like, oh, hey, something really went wrong here and, and we need to figure out why. It was essentially like, you know, pencil whipped uh, in, in the military bureaucracy and, until a lot of the most alarming stuff was hidden in, in sort of bland bureaucratic language or, and, and deep in, in reports that no one was going to read. So I think, Dave, you made a really important point about the realities of trying to identify who's a civilian and who's a combatant. And Luke, I want to ask you a little bit more um, to tell us a little bit more about how that determination is made and the significance of it. But I I just wanted to ask you also if you're able to comment on something that I think is an underappreciated legal component here that is uh, the U.S. has a somewhat unique position on the legality of this. As Dave said, there is under customary international law that as most people understand it, or as many people understand it at least, a requirement that individuals who cannot be actively determined to be combatants have to be assumed to be civilians. And the U.S. doesn't adhere to that, doesn't believe that that is a um, binding aspect of international law. So, you know, this incident leaves us with 60 people who, as Dave said, it's not really clear who they are. And the determination was made to take this strike anyway, without making an affirmative evaluation that they must have been combatants or otherwise were legitimate targets. So how was that supposed to work? And what do you think happened here? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and this, of course, gets to, you know, some of the fundamental questions around the U.S. declining to ratify the additional protocol um, of the Geneva Conventions and in, in related issues like that, such that, yeah, they have what you know, I think my colleagues have characterized as a highly anomalous uh, view on this when it comes to the United States versus its international partners. Let's just break that out a little bit further. So, so under the DOD assessment of whether civilians were killed, they require proof by a preponderance of the evidence, otherwise more likely than not, that an individual was a civilian. So you can see it kind of flips on its head, the, the ICRC reading of it. And even in fact, the, the director of national intelligence's reading of civilian casualties. So the director of national intelligence before President Trump kind of did away with this report, did an annual report on civilian casualties. And they have, and this is an actual quote from the report, the assessed range of non-combatant deaths includes deaths for which there is an insufficient basis for assessing that the deceased is a combatant. In other words, although this isn't, you know, uh, the, the Department of Defense isn't considered it to be legally binding on them, the Director of National Intelligence is a statement of U.S. policy is saying, if we don't know who they are, uh, we're going to presume that they were a civilian, right? And so there's this there's this level of kind of tension and incompatibility within the government itself when it comes to how DOD is assessing uh, who's a civilian and, and who's a combatant. And, and some of 
of the things that they used in this particular case to to justify that some of these individuals maybe have been combatants seem like fairly tenuous type things. For example, that some of the women and children were armed, right? Well, you know, you might imagine in an incredibly dangerous place um, as Bagus was at this point in time, that a number of individuals who were not adult male fighters uh, would potentially be armed. So when it comes to even how would you classify and how would you treat uh, child soldiers, even here, the department is, you know, it think presents some some views that are that are hard for us to fully uh, get our head around. So they don't make clear whether it's just merely the fact that a child is armed, that they would uh, consider that to them being a, a combatant, you know, typically by but most of our partners would require that a child actively be engaged in combat at the time that they're targeted rather than merely been armed or having previously been engaged in combat. And even DOD's own characterization of this is a little square. Wishy, right. So CENTCOM said that that armed women and children were, quote, not strictly classified as civilians, which is a, a way of characterizing this that I don't think I've ever seen before. It certainly begs a lot of questions as to what that means when you say that somebody is not strictly um, classified as a civilian. The, the really great Dave made some really great points about how the department assesses the results of its, its actions, how it does its battle damage assessments afterwards. And that, that it actually does respond to information provided by media um, and third parties and NGOs and things like that. And indeed, that's actually in U.S. policy. We At the end of the Obama administration, which I served, uh, we created a uh, civilian casualties executive order. And one of those is the requirement that the Department of Defense consider third parties when they are assessing the results of, of their strikes. I, I think that's great, and it's important that they do that. I think in practice, if you look across theaters, there's a lot of indications that the Department of Defense discounts those views in, in, in large part. So if you look at some of the disputes that AFRICOM has had with Amnesty International in particular when it comes to uh, strikes in Somalia, they've often discounted some of what Amnesty International has put out because they haven't been able to put people actually on the ground in Somalia to do interviews. Well, Amnesty acknowledges that, right? They acknowledge that there are shortcomings in their methodology. They, they explain in great detail how they actually build the sources that they have in order to assess whether civilians were killed in particular DOD actions. And yet, and, and it's a pretty impressive and rigorous methodology. Do I think that Amnesty always gets it right? No, I don't. But I do think that they present a very a very transparent and clear methodology for how they do this work. And yet the, the department often seems to discount those types of, of informed assessments when they're uh, considering their own assessments of what took place. That's a great segue. I, I want to sort of switch gears now to talk about what the U.S. government response was after this happened. So, Dave, in your reporting, you talk about the immediate reaction from those who were watching the better visual from the drone feed, um, being surprised that this had happened, and a military lawyer raising concerns up the chain of command that there had been a war crime. But just talk us through the the different responses and the immediate aftermath and then how it evolved from there that led us to a place where your reporting revealed that this strike had happened in the way that it did and it had not been previously disclosed. So what's supposed to happen when there's any credible uh, allegation of a potential war crime happening is a number of, of entities within the Department of Defense are supposed to be alerted. It's various top leaders, uh, Secretary of Defense's office, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as the relevant criminal investigative authorities. And the idea is that you want those entities to be alerted so that they can check it out. Maybe it's something, maybe it's nothing, but you uh, you want them to be able to be notified and, and take a look. And the uh, lawyer that we wrote about, the Air Force lawyer who witnessed this strike, he tried to do that through his chain of command. And it pretty quickly went nowhere. I think they just maybe thought he was blowing it out of proportion. And and his point of view is like, look, you don't get to make that that judgment. I don't get to make that judgment. We're just supposed to report this, uh, let other authorities look at it and move on with our job. That didn't happen. Uh, so he went independently to the Air Force's Criminal Investigation Service, the Office of Special Investigations, and and alerted them. They responded by saying, uh, it's actually a really remarkable uh, email if, if anyone wants to take a look at it in the reporting, but they essentially responded, hey, this might be something we would 
look at sometimes. It might not. It basically just depends on how much public heat there is on it. And since there wasn't any heat on this one at all, they let it drop. But the Air Force lawyer did not. Uh, he kept trying to find ways to actually get the the gears of, of the bureaucratic machinery in, in Operation Inherent Resolve to report this. And when that didn't work, he went around them to the Department of Defense's Independent Inspector General's Office. And the Inspector General's Office, you know, I'm sure most uh, listeners know how they work. It's, it's an independent, almost ombudsman who, who is the watchdog for the entity. He reported a hotline, I actually think it was an email, but to their hotline that said, hey, uh, this happened. Here's what the reporting is. Here's how I tried to do it. And it didn't work. So I'm concerned that this law of war violation happened and uh, the top leaders don't know about it. Well, there too, there was the same requirements at the inspector general's office as there was in the Air Force. When you get a credible allegation, you got to report it to the top folks. You got to report it to the criminal investigating authorities. But the same thing happened. They didn't report. Uh, They gave the case to one of the inspector general's evaluators. He interviewed uh, this whistleblower from the Air Force and decided, yeah, this guy, he's got all the evidence. He's, He's certainly like informed about the legal requirements. This is a real deal. And he went back to the inspector general's uh, leadership and said, we got to report this. He went back multiple times and it just never happened. I think he was mystified just as the Air Force whistleblower had been mystified about why leaders didn't seem to be following the rules on the book. Eventually, we learned about uh, this story through an independent source and started reaching out to everybody who was involved. Because neither the the Air Force officer nor the inspector general's evaluator had been able to get anything done. This thing had basically died in in uh, been cut um, from any reports. It was going to be buried, and it came to us, and and we were able to to put it out there and and have the Department of Defense recognize that it happened. I think what interested us, of course, is is that there had been this loss of life, but also there'd been this really revealing breakdown of the reporting processes and the safeguards in place within the air war. And it showed something about uh, the military's efforts in Syria that I don't think we had seen before. And so we thought it was extremely important. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got 
my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Luke, I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about that last point that Dave was making about this exposing a breakdown in the reporting process as well as a breakdown of the safeguards that were supposed to be in place for this conflict. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's there's a couple of ways to think about this. When I listen to Dave explain it, just as he did, you know, I look at that and say, well, on the one hand, there's probably some clear breakdowns in an established process, but a lot of what you describe, you know, certainly points to individuals in that process not wanting this information to be to fully get out. I think that's true. And I don't think we have enough information to have the conclusive answer there, but it certainly points toward aspects of a cover-up. And indeed, if you look at some of the members of Congress who have begun investigating this, they've used that term actually, a cover-up. And so, you know, to me, there there are the very deliberate things that, that you point out, which is, you know, that there were no mentions of a potential LOAC violation law of armed conflict violation um, in the uh, the CIVCAS report, that that was stripped from that report, that the mentions of Bagus were stripped from the IG report, um, that the deputy IG refused to sign a letter that would have alerted authorities and potentially opened a criminal investigation. This kind of really mind-boggling quote that you had from the Air Force Office of Special Investigations about only investigating things that have potential for high media attention, which doesn't seem to me like what the mission of, of that office should be in the first place. And then you have on top of all of that, this, you know, the, this came out, I think, Dave, in one of your follow on reports, this really like mind boggling scenario you had laid out there where the investigating task force, which is the same task force that took the, the strike in the first place, the investigating task force presents their investigation up to the higher headquarters in Baghdad. And Baghdad essentially doesn't get back to them. And CENTCOM doesn't reach out to Baghdad to remind them to reach out to the task force and to close or and to finalize this investigation. So you sort of have this case of pretty significant problems in the investigation in the first place, compounded by what seems to be just a certain amount of bureaucratic incompetence when it comes to dealing with this. 
And so you you look at this full set of events. And then when when John Kirby gets asked about this at the Pentagon, he says he's not going to relitigate a strike that happened two and a half years ago. Well, I think the problem is that this strike was never litigated in the first place. And seemingly every attempt to to have it litigated was prevented or thwarted along the way. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I, I also one of the things that that struck me is is that as you mentioned, like the 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 ball was dropped in several places. CENTCOM never got back to inherent resolve, inherent resolve never got back to CENTCOM. You know, I think they set up a weak bureaucracy because counting this, having an accurate count of civilian casualties was not a huge priority. And yet the the public message was very different. And and so for me, it was interesting to lift the hood on that and see where the weak spots were in that process. But you you lean toward the the cover up characterization. I, I I think it's both at the same time. You know, if if there's not strong yeah. incentive to not cover up and and like let's be honest, like do you want to report your own military for being mean to ISIS? Like I think that there's a huge cultural uh, barrier, you know, or disincentive to doing that. Um, so unless you have really strong processes in place, that reporting is is always going to break down. I think that's right. I think that's I think that's fair. You know, I think one of the things that was really troubling about your, your reporting on this, as well as the Times' reporting on the Kabul strike in the final mm-hmm. final days of our presence there, was in both cases, you have pretty troubling results from these operations. It seems to be much clearer, at least from the department's perspective, the, the results of that strike in, in Kabul. And they're still obviously investigating and kind of trying to determine from their perspective what happened in Bagus. But in both of these cases... You know, I worry about the number of contested strikes that took place in other areas, some of the far flung Mm. places of Somalia, of Yemen, of the kind of no man's land in Afghanistan, where there was not the level of of journalistic accounting um, that the Times brought to these two particular strikes. And that absent that level of kind of overwhelming journalistic evidence, uh, the department essentially says, well, you know, I know there are reports, but we we reached a different conclusion, and and that's really troubling. Um, and there's a different barrier too, uh, which I, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of, which is that there there oftentimes are witnesses to this stuff, whether it's the crews flying drones or or other military members. But because the drone war is is at least in Syria was almost completely classified. Those guys can't come and give me a call. Uh, if they talk to me in detail about those strikes and what they did in those secure rooms, that's a crime, you know. And so that's really different from you know if a GI in Vietnam had had seen something, he would be able to talk to uh, the next reporter he saw in Saigon, and he wouldn't have to worry that that he was going to be prosecuted for it afterwards. I mean, the the amount of fear and silence involved with with the people who were doing this war is, I think, really significant. And a lot of this stuff is classified long, long, long after it needs to be. I agree with that. I think there's uh, there's a, a number of issues like who who is actually overseeing the operations and providing it a second set of eyes. You know, are they even cleared to see the information as you, you document in your report? A number of of cases where you know they didn't even have access to uh, to the particular video because it was above their classification uh, level and approval based on their security clearance. Um, you know, those are things that that come up quite a quite a bit here, and and I think are pretty troubling uh, when you think about how do we kind of get to ground truth on an on investigation. And there's also questions about, you know, just, just who is actually trained to evaluate these strikes. In the context of the Kabul strike, the Department of Defense actually said that, uh, you know, it was hard to tell whether these were children, and it would have taken a really well-trained eye to do that. Well, I mean, gosh, we've been conducting strikes around the world in populated areas where there are children often present. And, you know, you would hope that the department regularly has people on on staff present in the operations centers whose sole job is to look for children and women and other civilians who might be caught up in these operations. I think that there is sometimes tension in the groups of people that uh, oversee strikes. And the person who pushes the button is not always the same person whose job it is to look for children. And I won't say more about that, except that we've got some reporting coming that I think will be really interesting on that. 
So since this report came out, the Biden administration has ordered a review of the incident, which by its mandate is supposed to focus on the civilian casualties, whether there was any violation of the law of war, and what the record keeping practices were. So I wanted to ask both of you in in two separate parts, um, starting with what are the facts as you see it about the strike itself that we still need to know about that this review should be sure to identify? I think that what we still don't know is who was the strike cell that called this in? Where were they? And what was the information they were basing this strike on? They claim that they didn't have a very good resolution on their, their drone cameras. And so they couldn't tell that civilians were there. Would a reasonable person who looked at that same footage agree? We don't know because we haven't seen it. And I would like to see that. In addition, I'd like to know more about what were the protocols that they followed before launching this strike? Uh, I think that there are different protocols depending on how you code the strike. And if something is an offensive strike to hit the enemy, there's, there's many more safeguards in place than if you say it's a defensive strike to protect allied ground troops. And if they used a defensive strike, would a reasonable person think that it was necessary based on the situation? Because remember, these fighters had been corralled in this spot for a month. They weren't going anywhere. Uh, They certainly didn't have the capability to overrun the forces that were there. And so I think that it would be revealing to see that information and understand more about how and why the strike cell acted so that we can decide whether you know their decision was reasonable. Okay. Luke, anything to add there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that I think Dave covers really well a, a range of things we want to know that are just not clear right now. I think I think there's a lot of questions that even go further upstream into how these operations are conducted um, and what we've learned from previous operations that we'd want to to get here, right? So there are some big things that we've already seen are kind of a preview of where the department or where the investigation might land. For example, better coordination between operational elements, better access to uh, to HD video, high definition video from, uh, from overhead surveillance. You know, th- those are great, great things. I'd be really interested to know if that's a recommendation that has been made in response to other strikes. I mean, CENTCOM conducted a thousand strikes in Syria and Iraq alone in just the year of 2019, right? There's a lot. There's a long track record here. As Dave noted at the top, this is a massive air war. And certainly there have been mistakes in the past. And so I'd be interested to know whether those were any of the challenges we're seeing here or things that were cited previously and that should have been addressed uh, going forward. I'd be interested to know what what efforts were taken over the past two and a half years to figure out the status of the 60 individuals who they can't confirm whether they were um, civilians or combatants. How many of those were women or children? Um, how long did they surveil the site after the action? Uh, did they attempt to speak to witnesses or develop source networks that would connect them to witnesses? Were they doing other surveillance on those who were present to see what kind of reflections that they had on that strike? So there are a number of things that just get to the kind of basic operational uh, questions as to as to how we're assessing what's happening going into a strike and what took place afterwards. On that question of what happened before the strike, you know, I think there's there's some questions as well about what it means when we act in collective self-defense of, uh, of partner forces. And that might be a little bit beyond the remit of this particular investigation, but it sure seems like they relied pretty heavily on a, a request for support from the SDF and an affirmation from the SDF that there were not civilians present. And I'd be interested to know whether there were other efforts that were taken to uh, to confirm the SDF's assessment in this particular case, uh, what that looked like, and, and, and what, as a matter of course, the department thinks is appropriate when it comes to taking a partner's word for uh, for the likelihood of civilian casualties. Okay. And the other component I wanted to ask you both about, and Dave, we'll start with you, is the review is also charged with doing a review of the response to all of this that you've talked through. What do you think are the key outstanding questions that the review should try to figure out? Boy, that's a good question because it gets into stuff that is less tangible. So it's harder to really understand what went wrong. But we do know that there were real concerns uh, about a large number of deaths and seemingly nobody did anything. Where did it break down? 
what were the actual requirements? I think there's some disagreement over that. And you could see it in a recent uh, response that CENTCOM made to the Office of Inspector General. What they said is, when there is a credible report of a law of armed conflict violation, yes, it is required that we report it to you know the right authorities. But credible report is defined not by the person who reports it, but by the commander in charge. And so CENTCOM gets to decide what's credible and what's not, which was really interesting. And obviously, there are a significant number of different opinions about how this type of stuff should really be conducted. Luke, how about you? What stands out to you as remaining outstanding questions the review should try to answer? Well, I think that I think Dave covered a lot of it. You know, I think there are a lot of questions uh, around how they did the investigation and and its subsequent reviews, whether that's through the inspector general or the such. But I think there are also a lot of questions about uh, transparency here and why there was not a more transparent kind of accounting of what took place that day, uh, disclosure of the of of what happened, and at least some of the these questions that were swirling around it, and whether those were credible or not. They, the department didn't have to to verify at that point, but this is a pretty significant, I mean, a massively significant action, and and you would think that there would be at least a greater level of of transparency around the fact that it, it took place. I think the department right now is struggling with some pretty significant credibility uh, challenges when it comes to their air wars. And this is only going to not just the actual action and, and the events that took place here, but the, the way that they discussed it publicly and have discussed it to date is only going to contribute to that, that credibility gap. And I think a, a big objective for the department has to be not only to figure out exactly what went wrong and to have accountability for that, but to also have as transparent as possible public accounting of what took place in an attempt to regain some level of trust that we are actually are conducting operations at the high levels of discrimination and precision and care for, for civilian life that the department has long proclaimed that they, they take on. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And the um, concerns about transparency and and the fact that we just didn't know about this, I think, as you said earlier, raise a lot of questions about what else is going on that we don't know about, particularly in areas where you can't rely on human rights organizations to raise concerns, you can't rely on witnesses to events who have a way to get the attention of U.S. forces or U.S. authorities to try to raise questions. And to that end, you know, especially with the airstrike in Kabul in August of this year, I think there's more attention to this issue. And uh, Secretary Austin recently announced that he's committed to adjusting policies and procedures, including by holding people accountable. So I wondered what your reaction was to that, both to holding people accountable when the strikes themselves go wrong. So if there was misconduct that resulted in war crimes, what should be the accountability there? But then also what accountability should we expect And what should we want to see with respect to the response and to the extent things were concealed or to the extent things were not handled properly according to procedures? Dave, why don't you start? You know, I think Luke is really right. The the key ingredient here is transparency. And I think that that would be the starting point for addressing whatever other problems are here. And I suspect it's it's not one easy fix. It's it's several difficult fixes. But when you have transparency, you can see what's going wrong. If everybody is going along with the fiction that this is the most precise and humane air war ever, and that there's only a few hundred civilian casualties, then there's no motivation to try to fix anything, you know, whether that means redoing regulations or processes or, or, you know, prosecuting people, you know, you've got to start by saying what's actually going on. And, you know, of course we try to do that at the the times, but we can never keep up with, with everything that the DOD does. So they've got to figure out a way to really tell the truth, not only to the American people, but to themselves, because I think that, that to a large extent, the military believes the fiction as much as the public does. I think the department needs to be to think about accountability on a few different levels. And so when we think about accountability, especially on an investigation, and especially what they call the 15-6 investigation, the kind that can lead to, you know, UCMJ um, sanction or, or criminal prosecution, 
you know, I think people look at these strikes and look at the horror of the civilians killed and say, okay, is there any possibility that, that somebody was criminally negligent or otherwise criminally culpable? And I think that's an important thing for all investigations uh, to look into. But I worry that if, if that's really the focus and kind of what we're expecting, that, you know, largely we're going to be disappointed because oftentimes these are very difficult decisions that people are making kind of um, in the heat of a battle. And that's not to excuse when there are genuine war crimes, we should definitely be on top of that and investigation to surface that. But there are also a number of other actions that can be taken uh, to discipline those who uh, may have made mistakes in these operations. And General Saeed, who is the lead investigator on the Kabul strike, spoke to some of those, right? These were things like decertifying people for certain things and reassigning them, you know, reductions in, in grade, et cetera. There are a number of other things that can be taken when there were actions that were problematic, but were short of criminal negligence or the such. And I think that's important. But I think even more broadly it, it, it is that you know, even if some of those mistakes that were made are not, do not implicate in specific individuals in wrongdoing, you know, these are drone operations are big and airstrike operations in general are big, complex operations. There are a lot of people contributing to the surveillance, to deciding what weapons to use, to actually conducting the strikes, et cetera. And in big systems, things break down. And it's really important if the department is, is as it often claims to be, a uh, strongly committed to being a learning organization, that they are constantly looking at what went wrong at an operational level and making adjustments to that so the department continues to learn and continues to get better um, from these operations. This is something that a number of, of my colleagues have written about. Lauren Shulman is a, one who's been particularly uh, prominent on this issue, but, but it's really important to, to nail that learning culture. Culture. And I think that's important for partly because, you know, look, I spent years in the Pentagon and at the National Security Council working with the special operators um, who conduct a lot of these strikes. And I know them to be highly competent, highly professional people. And, and I think it's really important to be able to, to substantiate that professionalism, to earn the public's trust and to, that they are as professional and careful as I know them to be, that they continue to be just ruthlessly critical of themselves and of the operations that happen when they re achieve anything less than, than perfectly optimal outcomes and results. Now, as to the question of the public accounting, because I think that's a really important point too, in, in the context of the Kabul strike, Dave's colleague, Eric Schmidt, wrote this really stunning sentence in one of his straight news reports, which was, nearly everything senior defense officials inserted in the hours, then days and weeks after the drone strike has turned out to be false. I mean, that is just an absolutely devastating line and totally accurate in the context of the Kabul strike. And it speaks to the fact that you have to get the, the details right, but you also have to, in some cases, pause for a minute and maybe not call a strike that's under investigation a righteous strike, as, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff did, and make sure that you actually have all of the right information, that that information has been carefully reviewed by, uh, by the legal advisors involved with the military, where it's not clear that that's actually been the case in the statements that the department made about uh, Bagus so far, and, and ultimately that you're acknowledging what you don't know, right? That there are, there are a number of information gaps and the department is, is open to acknowledging when there are still uh, gaps in information that they need to investigate further in order to have a more conclusive answer. So I think this may be an unanswerable question, but I will ask you anyway. I think that all of these points about the need for transparency, accountability, the need to earn the public trust are really crucial in our understanding of this incident and what it means and what we should do about it. It's it's deeply troubling. The sort of responses that are necessary that you've identified are really important, but I think we also have to acknowledge that setting aside the serious issue of overclassification, there are going to be instances where the desire, for example, for transparency and earning the public trust, accountability even for individuals, uh, we have to balance that against the fact that many things are and will remain classified. So given that, what is the answer to trying to address this problem? 
So first of all, it, yes, absolutely. It's important to balance uh, in the, the whole name of the game when it comes to transparency and national security is being able to give the public, the American public, foreign publics, the information they need to adequately assess um, the operations being conducted. And in the case of the American public, the operations being conducted in their name. And yet at the same time, you have to take great care to protect the sources and methods um, that make those operations possible that involve people's, you know, people's lives, people who are feeding you information et cetera. So I, I totally agree that that's an important balance. I would argue that the institutional forces within the U.S. government are very knee-jerk reflexive in favor of classification and in favor and in opposition to greater transparency. And so it actually takes a lot of kind of pressure from the leadership at the White House, at the earring level of the of the Pentagon to press on transparency. And it's also worth just, just pressing as to whether the claims you often hear from people within the enterprise that the disclosure of this would pose national security harm are actually true because I've seen a number of cases over the years where you know we were initially told that we shouldn't discuss drone operations at all even in even without naming specific countries and then that we shouldn't discuss specific operations outside of major areas of active hostility that we shouldn't put certain things into the unclassified war powers reports and you know in most of those cases those those concerns about uh, transparency proved to be pretty overblown. And so uh, I think there's more that can be done. It requires a careful eye. In the case of looking at an investigation, it requires a very careful editor um, to go through and figure out what needs to be redacted or, or blacked out. But that shouldn't be an impediment in the sense that that's too hard or an over uh, overabundance of caution shouldn't be an impediment to being able to uh, make that step towards transparency. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Look, I'm a journalist, so I'm deeply biased towards transparency. But I think that, you know, for too long, classifying things, denying their release was the easy, safe thing to do. There's no reward to like taking the risk that, well, maybe this will be okay. And so, you know, more and more is is locked away even, you know, years afterwards. What does it matter probably for most of the operations that happened in 2016, whether we know about them or not, show us where the bombs dropped, you know, show us when, uh, even give us the video, you know, if, if, unless there's some compelling reason not to, but that hasn't happened. Uh, so, you know, we at the times have to keep digging. Okay. I think that is a great place to end. Thank you both so much for joining me. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.